You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Eric Basmajian. Eric is the founder of EPB Research. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's fantastic to talk to you. Yes, thanks, Trey. I'm really excited to talk to you. Awesome. You know, Eric, you know, let's get started by talking a bit about your background. You know, how you, you know, sort of found yourself within um, finance and I guess more specifically sort of macro research. Could you know, you sort of started off um, in wealth management and then you sort of found your way to EPB research. So can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how you got into finance and sort of your journey within the finance industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've always been interested in finance and, and economics and I studied economics at NYU. Um, New York University. And while I was there, I took a course in the history of financial crises, Mm -hmm. uh, basically going back and studying all the financial crises throughout the last couple hundred years. And that was a course that really had a big impact on me. It fascinated me how uh, these crises came throughout uh, periods of of history. And uh, the the common theme was that they all were um, missed by majority of people. Uh, and it was intriguing to me why these big financial events were missed by the masses and sort of got me studying, you know, what were the commonalities between these um, uh, periods of financial excess, uh, mainly related to excesses and buildups in debt. Um, so that really sort of solidified my my passion for economics and studying economic history. Um, I spent a little bit of time in wealth management as I was graduating. Then I went to work at a quantitative hedge fund in, in Midtown Manhattan, uh, and I sort of took that economics background with some of the you know data analysis and uh, statistical tools that I was working with at the hedge fund, and sort of to create my own um, research process, combining you know these longer term secular trends that that play into these larger financial uh, crises and debt buildups over time, as well as the uh, business cycle analysis and the shorter term growth rate cycles and the ebbs and flows that we feel in the economy every couple of years. And um, I started publishing that research in, in various places and it was relatively unique in the marketplace, got a relatively uh, big traction pretty quickly. And uh, the rest was history. I started to uh, publish under EPB research. And here we are almost six years later and uh, still writing on business cycles and uh, hopefully what to expect over the coming couple of quarters. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, so that's, that's sort of, that's sort of a great note to start on. Um, And, you know, starting as, you know, I think the first thing that I wanted to jump into is, you know, this, this idea of where we are um, in the business cycle. And so, you know, you're sort of, um, I think, uh, especially on LinkedIn, you sort of classify yourself as an economic cycle analyst. And so I think that's, so I think you're probably the right person to talk to at this juncture. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Yep. So, you know, one thing that's been on everyone's minds lately is sort of this idea that we're going to see a recession within the next, say, somewhere around 12 to 18 months. So, you know, that's sort of 
it sort of become um and i think you know kevin muir uh, the macro tourist put out a note about this not too long back where he talked about how this might be the most anticipated recession um mm -hmm. ever so one you know what sort of your take on that and you know just broadly you know what sort of your take on even on the on this idea that we're going to see a recession sometime soon yeah so um so I uh, I study business cycles, and the first thing to know is that we need to have criteria on how we define these cycles, right? Because everyone may be talking about different things. Are we talking about two negative quarters of GDP? Are we talking about job losses? Like, how do we define this cycle that we're what we're talking about? And um, the way that I define the business cycle is based on what are called coincident economic indicators. They're called coincident indicators because they coincide with the peaks and troughs of the business cycle, right? So the, the data that falls into that coincident indicator bucket are your big, broad, um, reliable measures of income, employment, consumption, production. You know, you have your, your things like GDP, GDI. And there are other, you know, individual indicators that we can talk about, but but basically anything that is a reliable measure of, um, you know, household incomes, employment, you know, aggregate consumption, and you know the production that occurs in the economy is what defines the business cycle. That that defines whether we're in recession, we're in an expansion, the economy is accelerating, decelerating, and what I do is I take. Um, you know, a composite of these indicators from all segments of the economy, I mash them into one index and that, and I track the growth rate and that gives me a totally objective reading of where we are. And that index currently is trending at about 1.8% over the last six months. Now, the long-term average, like over the last 10 years or so is about 2%. Um, so the growth rate in the economy is decelerating from those crazy artificial stimulus induced peaks that we saw in 2021. We had growth rates of eight, nine, 10%. So the growth rate has been decelerating. We fall into about 1.8%, which is slightly below, you know, quote unquote trend, uh, but it's not below zero. So that's not a recession yet. So where are we? We're decelerating. We're getting closer and closer towards a recession, but we're not quite there yet. So what are the things that are holding us out of a recession? Well, employment is still growing at about two, two and a half percent. So that's still a little bit too strong for a recession. Although we can maybe get into some of the nuances with the household survey and the establishment survey, but broadly employment is still a little bit too strong. Um, industrial production is weakening rapidly, but it's still trending at about 2%, a little bit too strong. Um, and on the other side, we have real incomes, which are negative. So that would be, you know, consistent with recessionary periods. So we have employment that's a little bit too strong and production that's a little bit too strong. So the economy is not quite in a recession yet, although we've slowed dramatically and we're now growing below trend. So the real question now is where is that coincident, you know, growth heading? Are we going to go from you know, 1.8 to one to zero, ultimately, you know, into recession, or have we sort of seen the bulk of the slowdown already? Are we going to start to bottom out and, and move higher? Um, and what I use to determine that is I study, you know, what are called leading economic indicators. So the coincident indicators 
coincide with the peaks and troughs of the business cycle. The leading indicators are, are the indicators that move before the economy moves into a recession, for right. example. And um, you know, we can maybe unpack some of this, but but leading indicators currently are um, severely negative in, in my analysis. Um, you know, implying that a recession is certainly on the horizon. And where I am slightly different than consensus is uh, I don't believe a recession is sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. I think it's more likely within the next six months. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, when it comes to these leading indicators that you watch, so can you give some examples of, you know, of, of what you touch up on, of what you watch so that we could touch up on them? And, you know, one yeah. thing that I've seen you highlight um, has been housing and sort of this mismatch between the supply, uh, supply and demand characteristics of housing. So if you look at construction, um, yeah. demand versus supply, you sort of see um, a massive divergence there. So, you know, whether, so, you know, is housing one of the things that you track? Because, you know, I think housing has this very strong multiplier um, mm -hmm. on the rest of the economy. Yeah, very well said. Um, so when I study leading indicators, I, I classify them into two buckets, what I call longer leading indicators, things that have like a really advanced lead time, uh, and then shorter leading indicators, things that would say, hey, uh, you got to be alert to something that's about to happen in the next three or four months, let's say. And the reason that I separate them, and I believe that it's good practice to separate them, is because the longer leading indicators, while extremely informative, are sometimes so long that they're not really relevant for maybe asset allocation decisions or something like this. So the housing sector, for example, is one of the most reliable leading indicators, but it's in that longer leading indicator bucket. So you see the housing market generally turned down sometimes a year, year and a half, sometimes two years before a recession starts. Now, that doesn't mean that you should ignore it. It's it's an extremely relevant uh, uh, sector of the economy. It's extremely important because as you, as you correctly said, it's a very high multiplier sector, but you can also witness the housing market slow for six or eight quarters. And that could be quite early when you're trying to maybe uh, construct an asset allocation. So uh, when I look at leading economic indicators, I'm looking mainly at um, the rate of change in monetary policy. So when monetary policy, let's take you know the current environment that we're in, starts to move in a tightening direction that you know presumably puts upward pressure on interest rates, and mortgage rates, which then slows the housing sector. So that interplay between monetary policy, interest rates, and the housing sector are a good barometer of the longer leading bucket. Then once you get a downturn in those longer leading indicators, which we've fully seen already for, for several quarters now, there's not really a whole lot to do yet in terms of maybe asset allocation, but what you do wanna do is you wanna look at, okay, we have a downturn in some of these really early sectors. I need to be on high alert for that next part of the sequence to fall apart. Those are your shorter leading indicators. And that's where you'd see the slowdown spread through the manufacturing sector, right? Specifically your new orders. So if you start to see new orders come down, you also may start to see an imbalance between um, inventory and sales, right? So you may hear retailers start to note that they have bloating inventories. Um, you may start to hear about uh, downturns in the transportation sector, because if you have a slowdown in the housing sector, 
And the housing sector is responsible for a significant volume of goods moving throughout the economy. Think about washing machines and dryers and you know, microwaves and all these furniture, all these appliances that need to be shipped around the world from China and other countries to the United States, put on trucks, moved to the actual home, then you're likely to see downturns spread throughout that transportation manufacturing sector. Uh, mm -hmm. You also may see some of the early warning signs of weakness in the labor market uh, through initial jobless claims, hours worked, some of those types of things. So uh, where we stand today is, as I mentioned, those coincident indicators are certainly slowing down, slowing down pretty dramatically. We're at about, you know, one and a half percent, 1.8 percent. The longer leading stuff, so monetary policy, interest rates and housing are certainly consistent with recessionary periods. And then we're just starting now, you know, October, November, early December, starting to hear about recessionary conditions in manufacturing, transportation, trucking, things like that. Um, so that is my warning sign that, you know, we may see recessionary conditions uh, proliferate through the coincident indicators sometime in the next, you know, three, four, five, six months, something in that range. So you, so you know, just to sort of sum up what you said. So, um, so when it comes to the, so you sort of split leading indicators into um, sort of long leading indicators and shorter leading indicators. And so within that long ones, I guess I'm guessing your favorite is sort of housing, and then you have monetary policy, but sort of functions as a shorter leading indicator. Um, did I did I sort of summarize that correctly? Yeah. So so I, I put monetary policy in that longer leading bucket okay. as well. So I'm looking at the interplay between. How is monetary policy impacting the housing sector, for right. example? And then how is the housing sector impacting the manufacturing sector and the transportation sector and um, some of those, uh, you, know, you know, maybe some of your durable goods consumption. And then we get to, you know, your coincident employment and things like that. Got it. Got it. And, you know, any any other leading indicators that you wanted to mention that, you know, we sort of missed? Um... <clears throat> Yeah, so well, I'll give you, you know, sort of two conflicting ones. So we have, you know, the the new orders index, let's say from, you know, you can uh, take, you know, sort of any reading of new orders that you want. You don't have to use one specifically, but one that most people are familiar with is the ISM, Manufacturing New Orders Index. Yep. That has been below 50, if my numbers are correct, for uh, I believe four of the last five months. So that is signaling that new orders are contractionary and persistently so. That would be relatively consistent with the onset of a recession because when the recession began in 2007, December of 2007, ISM new orders was about 47 and it's about mm -hmm. 47 today. So that level, you know, you know, below 50, staying below 50 for a couple of months is relatively consistent with the onset of a recession and the relatively near term, particularly when it's preceded by a big downturn in housing and your earlier stuff. On the flip side, though, we have to remain consistent and we have to look at the whole basket of shorter leading indicators, of which one of them would be your initial jobless claims, for example. And we haven't really seen uh, material upticks in initial jobless claims quite yet. So yeah. that would be one that may suggest that a recession is perhaps a little bit further off. But I think there are some uh, significant nuances to the employment uh, situation now that, that, that may be uh, clouding that indicator a little bit.
Got it. Got it. Awesome. And so, you know, let's sort of start jumping into um, into housing. So, you know, when it comes to housing, so I think the one thing that uh, I think the one thing that we see in almost all um, data points when it comes to housing has been that housing has sort of been down the toilet over the last say 12 ish months. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, housing has a long um long lead uh when compared to the economy of about 12 to 24 months so you know when i come to thinking about this so you know what are sort of the knock-on effects of of you know how's uh, of uh this sort of downturn in housing and you know uh when it comes to when it comes to sort of an investment or asset allocation standpoint you know what should you know what should asset allocators and investors be looking at um especially when it comes to playing this sort of thing yep so the housing sector the first thing that we have to um you know, sort of layout is when we're talking about the housing sector as it pertains to a leading indicator, we're not talking about the price of homes. We're talking about the volume of transactions. That's right. really important because in the housing uh, um, sector, there is a volume cycle and then there's a price cycle. And the price cycle significantly lags the volume cycle. It's sort of the same concept of how inflation lags growth price lags volume. So we want to stay focused on the volume of activity or the volume of transactions in the housing market, because that's what has the multiplier effect through um, you know, the manufacturing sector and the transportation sector. So as you noted, we've seen very, very, very significant declines in the volume of activity in the housing market. Uh, and we're actually starting to, the declines have been so severe it's actually starting to lead to price declines in a pretty dramatic way throughout most parts of the country. How you would play that from an asset allocation perspective or how you may start to think about that is, you know, at least in the way that, that I do it, is when you see that downturn in the housing market and it's um, coupled with, let's say, uh, a contraction in monetary aggregates, right? So let's say the Federal Reserve is, is raising interest rates and contracting monetary policy. So you see you see you know shorter term interest rates rise, you see your monetary aggregates start to contract, you see the yield curve invert and then you see the housing sector slow down. That constellation of variables all happening at the same time is very very solid evidence that monetary restraint is is deeply entrenched in the economic system now. So then you say okay Monetary policy is starting to bite very clearly. It's mm -hmm. being reflected in a contraction in monetary aggregates. The yield curve has inverted, um, which is a signal of tightening, you know, um, tightening money. And then the, the the volumes in the housing market have slowed down. So monetary policy is is entrenched. Now, what's important about that is you know with a relatively high degree of certainty that that slowdown, that's sort of baked in the cake is going to have to flow through the rest of the economy, irrespective of what the Federal Reserve does next. And that's sort of where we are today, where I think a lot of people may be uh, overly reliant on a soft landing, where they're sort of just looking at the coincident indicators. And they're saying, you know, we're not in a recession yet. So if the Fed pivots now or soon, we may be able to avoid a recession when that's really unlikely to be the case, because the downturn is so deep in that longer leading bucket that you have a really high degree of confidence that if even if the Fed pivots today, that is going to still have to spread through the rest of the economic sequence and ultimately to coincident indicators. So to me, the way that to use um, 
the, the housing sector and those longer leading indicators is really just to sort of give you a warning signal and to put you on high alert for what's to come. And then once you see that slowdown leak into those shorter leading indicators, like your new orders, your transportation, your trucking, that gives you a really quick sign to say, oh, okay, this is definitely going to hit coincident indicators in the next couple of months. This is not noise. This is not random. This is part of a larger monetary and, and, and sort of business cycle process that's unfolding. So it gives you your first warning to pay attention. Then when you see confirmation, you're ready to make an asset allocation decision. Uh, while most people may still be chalking up, oh, that was, you know, you know, what, what, what did we hear, right? We heard, oh, the slowdown is just the housing sector, right? And then the Chicago PMI prints 37, trucking sector starts to slow down, and the ISM goes below 50 and say, well, maybe it's just a soft patch, right? You really have confidence that, no, this is a cyclical process that's underway, and it's undoubtedly going to hit those later indicators in the, in the economy. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about housing is sort of the point that we made earlier, where where housing has this large multiplier on the rest of the economy. So in a way, you know, housing has its impact on so many different sectors within the economy. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I wanted to um I wanted to bring up was um this idea of you know looking at transportation, container rates, trucking rates, etc. Um and so you know, could you talk a bit about you know the history of shipping and trucking rates as sort of a leading or a coincident or a lagging indicator? Yep. So when I think about you know the the trucking transportation sector, I'm thinking about it the same way that I think about housing, which is there's a volume cycle and a price cycle. So let's talk about the volume cycle first. The volume cycle is where we would see um, you know the demand for for trucking capacity go down. We would see uh, maybe some signs of reduced hours worked in in some of the trucking sectors, um, and that is very consistent with a slowdown in economic growth. Once that slowdown in economic growth persists for long enough, uh, companies try and hold on to that pricing power for as long as they can. And then when we start to see them you know, cut their prices, so reduce their you know, container rates, their trucking rates, all of these types of things, that's actually a sign that the slowdown has been deeply entrenched and it's actually going to start to hit inflation, which lags the business cycle. So um, while economic growth has this sequence of longer leading indicators, shorter leading indicators, and coincident indicators. Inflation has its, has its own sequence, which I define as a money price wage spiral. Now, a lot of people get that mixed up because they, they talk about inflation as a wage price spiral. That's not really how it works. It's a money price wage spiral. So using container rates as an example, what do I mean by that? Well, first, we had a very significant contraction in monetary policy or money, monetary aggregates, right? So Federal Reserve tightens monetary policy. They initiate quantitative tightening. You see interest rates going up. Just the, the monetary uh, growth in the economy starts to contract. Then, so it's money, price, wages. Then prices throughout the economy start to fall. You see asset prices falling, home prices falling, container prices falling, trucking prices falling, uh, commodity prices falling. Prices empirically throughout the economy start to come down. But wages, employment, 
core inflation, core services, these types of things remain elevated. If that money price wage spiral is sustained, you continue to contract monetary aggregates, the prices will continue to come down, and then ultimately employment and wages will fall. So the fact that we're seeing huge declines in container rates and all of these types of things is evidence to me that that money price wage spiral is underway and uh, it's going to have a significant uh, reduction on employment and wages in, in the near future. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, within that framework, so one, um, so, so one, um, typically I, I have seen people bring up the argument that wages both, both generally as well as specifically tend to be um, sticky and so it's sort of very difficult to bring um, wages down and sort of the argument is that you know what we're seeing right now um, just broadly within the economy is we're, we are seeing some sort of a wage price spiral where um, labor where sort of the the, the bargaining power of labor uh, versus capital has gone up a lot um, post-pandemic especially with the stimulus checks etc mm -hmm. and so therefore one wage growth is at least to some extent uh, sticky and these well at least what what is going to remain is sort of this high bargaining power of labor so i guess this this is slightly off the topic but you know could you comment on that you know what sort of your view uh well what sort of your view on the wage growth and the labor uh, and um labor market dy uh, dynamics that we've observed over say the last uh 12 to 18 months yeah so in terms of wages you know, I don't think that the bargaining power for for employees and wages is as strong as the um, as sort of the mainstream narrative. And the reason for that is because while wages are going up and they're going up at a level that we haven't seen in quite a long time, they're still growing below the rate of inflation. Right. So the inflation rate was seven, eight, nine percent. And if you look at something maybe like the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, right, we're looking at levels of five, six, seven, right? So uh, employees are getting wage increases, but it's really the bare minimum that they're able to get because they're still losing ground to inflation. Right. Um, Your wage growth is negative. Exactly. I have a chart on, on my Twitter feed where I look at uh, real private sector income. So income derived from every component of the private sector, basically just excluding what comes from the government. And if you take the trend line that the economy was on, real incomes were going up at about a 2.8% annual rate. And if you take that trend line over the last expansion and extrapolate it to where we should be now, real incomes for the private sector are $1 trillion below that that trend line. It's a very, very, very significant gap that's developed. Now, the government you know, has plugged some of that gap with increased transfer payments, but they've had to borrow more money in order to do that. So you're just basically borrowing money to, to pay people, which is ultimately an unsustainable path. But the fact that real incomes have deteriorated at such an extreme level to me, is a sign that uh, the labor strength is not as strong as people suggest, because even in the 1970s, during the period of high inflation, real growth or after inflation growth was actually still quite strong. It was one of the stronger decades in terms of real wage growth uh, and real economic growth, you know, still in the two, three, even 4% range for a period of time. So uh, I think this situation is different, and it speaks to the fact that um, uh, corporate uh, corporations don't have 
um, a significant room to compress margins through paying higher wages. Uh, and I think that the ultimate strength and bargaining power of, of uh, you know, the employment sector is, is weaker than uh, we, we may be hearing from, from most people. I think that's I think that you bring up a very interesting point because I think you know right now um, when it comes to the labor market what we're seeing and you know usually you can't make this distinction but you can sort of make a distinction between a tight market um, and supply them uh, tight market versus sort of a strong labor market and you know I think mm -hmm. the labor market is tight but it's not really strong considering that it, real yeah, wage growth has been negative for a some. really good distinction because if you look at something like the labor force participation rate or the employment to population ratio they haven't increased at all in the last seven or eight months and yeah. normally what you would see is if real wages were so strong and an attractive option theoretically it should pull people that are not in the labor force back into the labor force it should exactly. increase labor force participation and we're not seeing that at all so uh, uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, these are these are sort of difficult concepts to to pinpoint exactly. But despite the fact that nominal wages are going up a lot, real wages are still quite terrible. And that's not really causing a significant pull of people coming into the labor force. So I think that you make a really good point in that the tightness that we're seeing is really just so many people that left the labor force, not really this, you know, massive competition to bid up wages. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so, you, uh, and so you're saying that uh, the tightness in labor supply is caused by people who've sort of dropped out of the labor force. Right. Whether it's some combination of you know, uh, the boomers retiring or reti retiring early. And there seems to be a reasonable amount of evidence that uh, COVID disabilities have contributed to something like maybe one or two million people dropping out of the labor force. Okay, got it. Well, that's, that's, uh, uh, that, that, I, I, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, it's, 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 I think the Brookings Institute um, uh, did, a, did a paper on this and it was, you know, either some, some combination of COVID disabilities um, or people caring for other people that now have COVID disabilities or something related to, to that. Um, you know, the, the, the reason why so many people have left the labor force is, I don't think, uh, totally proven yet. But in my opinion, it's some combination of uh, some uptick in disability as a result of COVID and uh, some combination of early retirement from boomers, um, uh, some combination thereof. Yep, got it. Got it. Um, one one more thing that's that's very interesting with regards to the labor market, and I've seen uh, a bunch of people highlight this, um, is sort of the differences between the household and uh, household survey versus the establishment survey. So, you know, could you sort of jump into that? You know, talk about some of the differences there and why we are seeing some sort of differential between the two. Yeah. So it's a very, very significant difference that's going on. And I'll tell you about the differences and how I sort of rectify that. So the establishment survey is what most people follow. The establishment survey is the number that, you know, when you turn on CNBC and they're all sort of guessing the number, that's the establishment survey. And that survey is, um, surveys businesses, and it's also got this birth death model associated with it. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, that's the number that most people follow. It's a little bit smoother. It's not at quite as volatile. Um, so for those reasons, people tend to, to focus on the establishment survey. The establishment survey is showing labor market growth of about two and a half percent right now, uh, which is above the longer term average. 
Uh, over the last 10 years, labor market growth from the establishment survey has been about 1.4 to 1.8%, and it's currently 2.5%. So that's where some people are deriving this tight labor market um, um, thesis from. Labor market growth from the establishment survey is above trend. Um, one fact about the establishment survey is that it counts multiple job holders per job. So the example that I give is if you drive for Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, that's technically three jobs. Now, that's maybe a bad example because as you know, one of your last guests, Jim Chanos, points out all the time, they're independent contractors, they're not employees. But the concept is that if you have multiple jobs, that's counted as multiple payrolls, even though you're one person. Yep. The household survey counts one person for one person, irrespective of if they have one job or 10 jobs. So um, what, and what we've seen over the past basically six months is this really massive gap between the establishment survey and the household survey, um, which either tells us that multiple job holders are increasing and the establishment survey is picking that up and the household survey is not, or the birth death model, sort of the estimation factor is a little bit off. Um, the household survey, the trailing growth rate is only 0.8%. So if you look at the household survey, the employment market has lost jobs over the last several months and it's growing below trend. So that's yeah. not very strong, right? So how do we rectify this? Which survey do we use? You know, you, you see these people that don't have much of a process. They sort of pick which indicators fit their narrative at any given moment. To avoid that, what I do is I create the same way I created a coincident indicator of the broad economy. I create a coincident indicator of employment. So what I do is I take uh, several reliable metrics of the labor market from different surveys, different reports, different agencies, and I combine them all into one, all of them which have to have a proven track record, a long history. So you think about you know, the household survey, the establishment survey, you think about aggregate hours worked, you gotta include hours in there as well. And then when you look at the um, uh, initial jobless claims report, they also provide an unemployment rate from that initial jobless claim. So you can look at the unemployment rate from a totally different survey. Mm -hmm. What you do is I combine all of those into one index, and then I track the growth rate of that index because that says, hey, look, I'm not focusing just on the establishment, just on the household. It all goes into the hopper. It all goes into the index. And then I'm tracking the growth rate of the collective. And when you do that, what's really interesting is that that coincident index of employment that I, that I have has contracted in four of the last six months. And the growth rate, the trending growth rate has now fallen below trend. So I take an objective reading on the situation and I say the tight labor market story was a story of yesterday because the most recently available data when you aggregate it is now showing that employment growth is below trend. So that's the way that I sort of square the differences in the two reports is I put them all together and then I track the aggregate because you know, when you when you have a process that's relying on various indicators, you can have an indicator that's 85 or 90 percent successful over time, uh, which is a very good success rate. 
there's no indicator that you can follow that has a 100% success rate. Every yeah. individual indicator is subject to fail at any at, at, at random. But when you track a basket of reliable indicators, all of which have 80 or 90% success rates, it's much less likely that the whole collective basket is going to fail. So that's why I do it that way. Gotcha. And I think that's, I think that's very smart. Um, we're sort of putting, you know, bundling them together and then tracking the basket um, as an aggregate, as opposed to tracking individual mm -hmm. um, indicators. And so, you know, just within that, so, you know, when you, no, when, when it comes to figuring out whether an indicator is reliable or not. So, you know, what, you know, what is, so is that primarily based off of um, sort of historical reliability? So, you know, has this indicator been able to say, you know, pinpoint turning, like been able to point out, you know, where the economy is going to turn or, you know, where the employment is going to turn, et cetera. Or do you, do you have, you know, other metrics for looking at or assessing the reliability of an indicator? Yeah, it's a great question. So I look at several things when I, when I, you know, either incorporate a new metric into the bucket, which takes, you know, a fair amount of scrutiny. So basically what you have to look for is first and foremost is before you study the indicator itself, you have to understand where that indicator conceptually fits into the economic sequence. So it's, you know, if you're going to look at an indicator of employment, you have to understand where that employment metric falls into the economic sequence. Because one thing about business cycles is there's, you know, nuances and idiosyncrasies from cycle to cycle, but they still follow a very predictable sequence in terms of things that happen first, second, third, and fourth. So it has to logically make sense and you have to understand where it falls in the economic sequence. If you're looking, you know, at an employment metric, and you're trying to judge whether that's a leading indicator or not, you're never going to have any success with it because it's just the wrong sequencing. Um, so it has to be logical. That's number one. Number two is it does have to have a long history of reliably uh, doing what you want it to do. So if it's a coincident indicator, it's got to reliably you know, coincide with the tops and bottoms of the economic cycle. If it's a leading indicator, it has to have a long history. And you want to judge how many false signals were there? How many times did it make an error? And you want to have indicators that have obviously very high success rates, very few false signals. The other things that you want to look at is you want to look at the um, uh, volatility of the index because you know if you have an index that's extremely volatile, looking back 12 months, maybe uh, may, you may see uh, an inflection point, but it's so volatile in real time that it's difficult to discern, you know, uh, near-term uh, economic events from that. So you want to look at the volatility. And then the last thing you want to look at is the uh, magnitude of the historical revisions. So if you have an index that's really reliable, but it's only reliable after the second revision, then you may not want to include that because we could be sitting here, you know, in December, uh, we're reporting data for November, yeah. but that indicator is not accurate until maybe February, right? When once it gets re revised a couple times. So exactly. you know, the yeah. gold standard is to have an index that's consistent across a long period of time, preferably many decades. So you have multiple regimes of inflation, deflation, you know, monetary tightening, monetary easing. You want to have an indicator that's uh, not extraordinarily volatile, and you want to have an indicator that has a relatively low 
um, uh, revisions or, or, you know, uh, the delta of the final number relative to what's actually released. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the process that I go through when I'm determining indicators and um, how they may fit into different buckets. Yep. I think that's a, that's sort of like a great checklist or a set of points to note when it comes to um, looking at and assessing um, economic indicators by themselves. And so, you know, that, that question comes up. So one of the things that you mentioned towards the end was, uh, so a lot of these indicators, especially the big ones, say GDP or employment, et cetera, are actually sub subject to these big um, data revisions. And so what sort of your view on data revisions and how likely are they to sort of skew your your, uh, your real-time view uh, of where we are in the business cycle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with, with these you know, government reports, they tend to be very accurate over time, uh, but they can be subject to large revisions. So uh, there are two types of revisions that most economic uh, or government data goes through. We have the, you know, sort of... Uh, first and second revisions, you look about the employment numbers, uh, you know, the number we just got will be revised twice in the next two reports. But then we also have these benchmark revisions, which are conducted usually on an annual basis or a five-year basis. Those benchmark revisions can be, can be quite large and they make the data very, very accurate, but they're sort of, you know, so far in the future that those don't tend to have as much um, of a um influence over economic decisions because uh you know we may not get a benchmark revision for gdp for six more months something like that um but when you're looking at um you know the direction of revisions the direction of revisions tend to occur in the direction of the uh, economic momentum so when the economy is decelerating Mm -hmm. uh, future revisions tend to be in the negative direction. And when economic momentum is heading higher, then the revisions tend to be in the positive direction. Now, the really critical, critical point is what are the revisions around the inflection points? Because the economy may be accelerating and then decelerate. What are the revisions going to be when the economy kind of experiences that change in, in momentum? And those can be extremely tricky because a lot of this economic data is estimated and they have sort of these linear econometric models that spit out the numbers, which make them have heavy revisions around the inflection points. Because when the economy is trending higher, the estimation models are extrapolating that forward. And then only when we get the revisions, you know, many months later, and it becomes more accurate, do we realize that, oh, there actually was an inflection point. And the way that we handle that is by studying those earlier sequences. So if you have a downturn in your longer leading indicators, you have a downturn in your shorter leading indicators, and those you know, longer leading indicators look recessionary, shorter leading indicators look recessionary, and then you get an employment number, my bias would be that the employment revisions would be towards the downside. Mm -hmm. Because we have good evidence that when the labor market does inflect, it happened in accordance with, uh, you know, sort of the historical economic sequence. So uh, revisions of the economic data tend to happen in the momentum of uh, the economy, which means that I expect the economic data around this time period, October, November, December, sort of the stuff that's coming in now, 
I expect in the future, when we look back at this period, we're going to see economic and coincident indicators that are lower than what we're seeing reported now. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, and one more thing. So when it comes to leading indicators, so one of the things that one of the things that sort of I guess everyone um loves to watch and talk about is this yield curve and how the yield curve is sort of how a lot of the yield curve has been inverted over the last uh, the last six uh, six to twelve months and so you know what, so where that's interesting is you know typically people look at yield curve and say okay you know yield curve is inverted therefore you know, we're going to see some sort of a recession within say the next twelve to eighteen months. So, you know, what is sort of your view on the yield curve and, you know, how do you interpret the yield curve? And then on top of that, you know, what's sort of your view on QE, QT, considering that, you know, we've sort of have we sort of have more data now, um, you know, since the start of the Fed hiking cycle. So as as far as the um, leading indicators are concerned and how the yield curve plays into that, that would be in the longer leading bucket, because as you mentioned, when the yield curve inverts, historically, that signals a recession on average 12 months later. Now, sometimes the lead time is shorter. We've seen like six months before. Sometimes it's longer. We've seen like 20 months, right? So all these leading indicators have a range in terms of their historical track record. The yield curve tends to have quite a large range, but on average, it's about 12 months from the initial inversion to the start of the recession. So the yield curve defined by the most popular twos 10 spread inverted uh, in June of 2022. So um, you say, okay, does that make sense? Well, we have a tightening of monetary policy. We have a downturn in the housing market and we have an inversion of the yield curve. So that's a good, uh, a reliable basket that signals monetary restraint. Uh, and if we extrapolate the average, which is 12 months, that would imply a recession landing somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, June of next year. Um, you know, sort of that six month window that I talked about is historically consistent. So uh, the yield curve is a very reliable indicator, in my opinion, uh, specifically when it's combined with a basket of other indicators in that sequence and then confirmed by shorter leading indicators, which we're seeing now like a decline in new orders, decline in trucking and transportation. So uh, yield curve, in my opinion, very good, reliable signal of, um, of uh, you know, recessionary probabilities. The fact that we're seeing an inversion or we've seen an inversion is uh, very consistent. And I think supportive of the idea that a recession is, is certainly in the forecast. Um, can you remind me what the what the second question was in that? The second part of the question was sort of talking about QE, QT, you know, your views. Oh, yes. Considering we okay. have more data since. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm of the opinion, um, which I think is counterintuitive and counter to mainstream, that uh, quantitative tightening uh, flattens the yield curve and quantitative easing steepens the yield curve. Now, to most people, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if the Fed is buying bonds, people believe that that suppresses longer term interest rates and that should yield uh, lead to a flattening of the uh, uh, flattening of the yield curve. And when the Fed is selling bonds, that should lead to a steepening of the yield curve because there's no one there to buy them. It's never actually been it's never actually worked that way in the several episodes of quantitative tightening that we've had. I mean, we see today when the Fed was gearing up to do massive amounts of um, quantitative tightening. 
uh, and treasury issuance was increasing. We had many people calling for, you know, this great steepening that we were going to see because no one was going to be there to buy 10-year and 30-year bonds once the Fed stopped, the banks stopped, and everybody stopped. But what have we seen? We've seen a yield curve that's actually more inverted than any time in history, right? So how does that happen? And the reason that happens, in my view, um, is because of a quote that I take from uh, Henry Hazlitt, who wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson, which is yep. that... Uh, you can't look at the immediate effect of any policy. You have to look at the how that policy is going to affect, you know, the entire economic sequence and all participants, all players. So the reason I believe that quantitative tightening always flattens the yield curve is because when the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, that's a contractionary monetary activity. That tends to uh, it tends to widen the risk premium of you know interest rates relative to treasury rates so mortgage rates let's say so the spread between mortgage rates and treasury rates starts to widen that puts downward pressure on the housing market that then slows the rest of the economy and then the yield curve responds to the slowdown in economic growth and increased recessionary probabilities rather than this supply narrative the bond market never reacts to these supply narratives so quantitative tightening to me is always a flattener because it slows economic activity, um, you know, by basically pushing more duration into the economy, yep. widening out the spread between private rates and, and, and public rate, uh, rates, putting downward pressure on the economy, increasing recessionary risk, which the yield curve reflects through an inversion. Yeah, I think I think to add to that, so one more thing that we see typically within Q. Well, not directly within QT policy, but usually QT is complemented by the Fed hiking. And so when the Fed hikes, you know, that drives the that drives the yields on the short end of the yield curve higher, which I think is also Definitely. worth mentioning. Totally. Totally. Yep. And so, you know, from sort of an asset allocator standpoint, so you know, what so when it comes to building um an asset allocation at this point in time, so you know what well, what asset classes, you know, would you be looking to uh, when it comes to actually investing money? So, you know, one of the one of the sort of quote unquote classics would be so as we see um inflation slow down and as we see the economy slow down, sort of the obvious trades ends up being, you know, buying, say, the 10 year, the 30 year um, treasury. So, you know, is it that simple? You know, what else are you looking at um, and where are you looking? Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't run any outside money and there are an infinite number of permutations on how you can wrap an investment strategy around economic cycles. Um, I tend to just put forward the most simplistic uh, way to use economic cycles, um, you know, which is that when the economy is accelerating and growth is increasing, that's a time that you want to take on um, as much risk as possible. Um, that generally would mean more speculative risk assets like stocks and credit and things like that. And when the economy is slowing down and heading towards a recession, that's the best time to be as defensive as possible. And I phrase it in those terms because everybody is completely different, right? Somebody listening to this could be a long short manager. You could be a multi-asset manager. You could be just a fixed income manager. So when the economy is accelerating, you want to take on risk. When the economy is decelerating and recession is a likely uh, outcome, you want to be as defensive as your investment mandate allows. That's where I believe that we are now. So I would be advocating for a significantly uh, defensive investment posture. Now, to put that maybe in a more concrete asset allocation, one of the things that I do personally um, 
is I always approach the world with a balanced portfolio, something like the all-weather portfolio, right? It's got uh, stocks, intermediate-term bonds, long-term bonds, gold, and commodities. And uh, based on the environment that I see coming over the next couple of quarters, I'll simply tilt my asset allocation in the direction of the assets that are likely to perform relatively uh, better and avoid the ones that are likely to perform relatively uh, worse off. So at the moment, given that asset uh, all weather uh, sort of framework, I'd be more tilted in the direction of treasury bonds and gold. I'd be less exposed to the riskier uh, sides of that portfolio, which would be stocks and your industrial uh, commodities like copper and oil and things like that. Why gold though? So that's 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 sort of an interesting thing you bring up because I think what's interesting is historically, um, you know, sort of gold has not really since the end of the 1990s, gold hasn't really kept up with inflation. Um, and it sort of has a function as a safe haven, but otherwise, you know, it's not really been sort of the asset that or it's not really been something that's that's really performed um over say mm -hmm. the last 20 years. So you know what, you know, why gold? Yeah, it's an excellent point. The, the the real return on gold tends to converge to something like zero or 0.5%. So it's definitely not going to add a ton of return to your portfolio. Uh, but what it tends to be is it tends to be uncorrelated to some of the other assets. So it provides some stability uh, to, to the portfolio basket. And then the other thing is that it's a relative bet. It's a relative trade. So when the economy is accelerating, I would reduce my allocation to gold very, very, very low because like you said, it doesn't really add a whole lot of value, right? Um, it's not going to really provide a whole bunch of return. I'd much rather be in, in stocks and maybe some of your more speculative industrial commodities. But when the economy is slowing down, it's not that I think that gold is going to perform really well. It just tends to be an asset that holds up better than your risk assets. So you may plot something like the ratio of stocks to gold. You look at like maybe the Russell 2000 to gold. It tends to track the economic cycle quite well. So, you know, the environment that we're heading into, which which may likely be a more disinflationary or deflationary type recession, that could definitely be a negative for gold in absolute terms, yep. but it should still hold up better than the uh, more speculative risk assets like stocks. In other words, I would expect the ratio of stocks to gold to fall in a re in a recessionary environment. So um, I would I would preference um, treasury bonds first for the environment that I expect to come you know, if I had to rank them, then gold, then stocks, then commodities. So it's more of a relative bet because I totally agree with you that over time, it tends to provide stability, but not much else than that. Got it. Yeah, no, gold, ha yeah, I agree. So gold has that sort of orthogonal payoff in the sense that it doesn't really move um, around, I guess, with the typical quote unquote beta. And, you know, so, you know, one more thing. So when it comes to, uh, when it comes to recession, do you have a way for classifying recessions in the sense that, no, you know, a recession with negative, uh, I guess a quote unquote recession with negative 1% GDP growth versus something with say negative 5% versus say something like the Great Recession or even say the Great Depression. So those are like monumentally different events. And, right. you know, they have, you know, completely different implications for the economy and for society as a whole. So, you know, within that, do you have ways for classifying recession? Then, you know, how, you know, how deep do you think the, the sort of upcoming recession is going to be? Okay, so a couple things. So as I mentioned, that coincident indicator bucket, you have income 
consumption, production, and employment. Yep. Generally, they, they track in the same direction. So a recession is defined by when that collective basket is below zero, right? So if you have the if you take those four indicators, you combine them together like I do, and that goes negative on a growth rate terms, let's say year over year, that's mm -hmm. a technical definition of a recession. Now, in terms of judging, you know, one recession versus the other, you may look at obviously how negative it goes. So is it negative one or negative five, as you say? But then it's also worth looking at the subcomponents to say, are, you know, one of four indicators negative and it dragging the whole basket down? Are two of four negative? Are all four negative? That is what sort of gets you to uh, more severe recessions versus more mild recessions. Maybe, you know, in a very mild recession, you have a contraction in employment, income, production, but maybe, you know, your broad basket of services consumption really doesn't fall. Maybe it falls a fraction of a percent or something like that. Um, so I think that the way that I, I judge the severity is one based on uh, how negative does the growth rate go, negative one or negative five or negative 10, and then how widespread is the negativity across all of the you know subcomponents of the basket that I'm tracking and and then the relative magnitudes between them. In terms of how severe the recession may be going forward, um, I I don't comment on that in um, very um, uh, concrete terms because, the uh, these leading indicators and this cyclical process is much more reliable in determining the uh, direction of growth. It only secondarily may give you impacts on the magnitude. So it's uh, I you know I have to basically caveat caveat by saying that my estimation on magnitude is more speculation, where my view on direction is more uh, data driven. My hunch is that the recession may be more severe. And the way that I'm arriving at that conclusion is because when you go back over time and you look at the more mild recessions, the most recent one being uh, uh, 2000, 2001, it wasn't mild for asset markets, but it was mild for the economy. It was barely a contraction. And the more mild recessions tend to be correlated to very minor slowdowns in the housing market. So the 2000s recession barely came with any slowdown in the housing market at all. Home prices actually never really fell at all. And the volume of housing activity based on a composite of different metrics only fell something like 5 or 10%. Um, compared to today, where the volume of transactions has fallen 35%. So uh, again, it's definitely more speculative, so take it with with that caveat. But when you see significant downturns in the housing market, in 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 my estimation, that tends to correlate generally to more severe recessions because of that multiplier effect that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so if we didn't have a big slowdown in the housing market, I may be more sympathetic to the mild recessionary calls. But it seems um, increasingly unlikely to me that as the volume of transactions in the housing market goes down 30, 40, and maybe in the future 50, 55%, uh, that we can avoid a more substantial recession. Yep, yep, makes sense. And so right now, so so in a way, the probabilities of a deeper recession, um, just, just in probabilistic terms, so you'd say they are higher 
Um, I, I'd have I'd have to lean in that direction. Yeah, I'd have to lean in that direction. <laughs> gotcha. And and what you know, and sort of to wrap it up, you know, if we so if we are sort of once we see some sort of recession next year, you know, what's going to mm-hmm. be you know, what's going to be the way um what's going to be the way we sort of get out get out of it you know is it going to be the conventional ways of where uh, you know central banks start to cut rates pump in liquidity and then you know the, the the government intervenes with some amount of fiscal policy that's been the typical response for ever so long right now um or is there you know is, is there you know something else going to change well you know tough tough to say um, I would lean towards the the normal response is probably going to be something along the lines of of what we get here. Um, it may be more delayed than normal, which also could be another factor that tilts the scales towards more severe, given the fact that policymakers perhaps will be more reluctant to come to the rescue until they see inflation come down closer to their two percent target which is unlikely to occur until at least Q1 or Q2 of 23. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that the economy falls into recession, perhaps Q1, maybe early Q2, and the Fed is not, um, uh, you know, responding with, you know, cat-like reflexes, um, to, to the extent that they're a little bit more delayed, that, maybe will tilt the scales towards more severe. But when they do eventually decide to respond, I would expect the the traditional response of, you know, slamming interest rates down, ending quantitative tightening, and likely some fiscal response coming from the the federal government. Um, things that I would be looking for uh, for the economic cycle to be moving in the other direction would just be the uh, opposite of the sequence that we outlined. So I'd be looking for that you know, rate of change easing in monetary policy, looking for a steepening of the yield curve. I'd be looking for uh, a a stabilization and a rebound in some of the earlier housing metrics. Mm -hmm. That would be signs to me that the economy in the future is going to rebound and and probably come out of recession. Got it. Awesome. Yeah, with that, Eric, you know, thank you so much for an awesome podcast. It was great talking to you. And I think our listeners are going to have a lot to learn. Um, I, I've, I've certainly learned a lot. So I think our, our listeners are going to have a lot to learn um, as well from you. So, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It was uh, it was good talking to you. I loved your questions and it was nice to meet you as well. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.